Well, I'm ready if you're ready. Well, theoretically, you're the you're the intro guy. You can hear me fine. All right. Well, if we're good to go, welcome to the USA Fingerboard Podcast. Today, I'm your host Gary Graves, and I have a very, very, very special guest today. You all know him. Everybody loves him. Levine Cunningham from United States Fingerboard Lead League. Uh, Levine is also known as USA FBL on Instagram. Levine, thank you for coming to your own podcast. How are you doing? Good, man. Good. I'm uh, I'm stoked to be on the podcast. I, uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm never on this side of the podcast, so pretty cool right. to be able to tell you guys my story. Well, I'm uh, I'm glad you joined me on the podcast today. I've been reaching out trying to get you on here for a while, and it just seemed to actually work this time, right? Man, I'm hard to get <laughs> at. Yeah, no, I've been you've just been MIA for a while now, but. Uh, so as far as intros go, that was my first time doing the host intro. How to, how to go? I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna lie. It's uh, it was decent. You could maybe a little bit better, but you know, once you do it a hundred times like me, you could be a pro. You could be a oh, pro. Geez. Oh, okay, okay, okay. But anyway, uh, I don't know. Let people let people know in the comments. Should should, should Gary take over the uh, the intros or uh, or is the you know Levine intro pretty good? Listen, y'all putting a lot of pressure on me right now, so let's just keep it with Levine for now, and I'll step in when I have to. Fair enough, fair enough. I'm gonna, so, I'm gonna mentor you. I'm gonna get you like phenomenal at it. Well, what's throwing me off right now is because this ain't usually where I do the podcast, so I have like this like echo in the room. So when I'm talking to you, I can hear like the the off the wall. Where are and, you? Uh, usually, uh, I think I'm, you're like at the house, and you got like all the cool like skateboarding stuff behind you and all that. Right, I'm over at my sister's house. I've been doing a lot of like a, a whole bunch of work recently. So in order to make this work in my schedule, I had to do something a little bit closer because when I get done with this, I got to head back to work. And instead of like a thirty to forty minute drive, it's like a ten minute drive. I feel that you're uh, definitely a busy guy, so I appreciate you always being able to come onto the podcast and letting everybody hear the hear the cool stories and stuff that go down here. Oh, geez, you're gonna make me blush again. Well, this ain't about me. Let's talk about you today. I want to hear some of your, and I don't, not just me, but everybody. Let's hear about your background. Let's get this ball rolling. So just straight, straight into it. I, I straight think. into it. Straight. Okay. Isn't that how you go? You just sharpshoot it straight in like that? Ah, uh, sometimes. You know, sometimes I like to, you know, warm the chicken up a little bit. You know, uh, the that podcast foreplay, huh? Just a little podcast foreplay. You know. <laughs> You warm the chicken up a little bit. Gotcha. <laughs> I'm gonna start using that one. Let's we're done warming the chicken. Let's go straight to it. <laughs> Tell us about your background. <laughs> Man, so I where do I even start? So I feel like I'm always nervous. I don't usually like to like just tell my business. I'm like a super, super like private individual. I will live like uh, leave a little like you know gold nuggets here and there from time to time, but uh, for you guys to really be able to get this story, I'm about to tell you guys stuff that like I've literally have never told like any of like this. Like it's all like pretty much like an exclusive interview, I guess you would say. I got best friends that don't even know this, and so like when they hear this, they're like, "Bro, like, like I didn't know," and I'm like, "I know, it's crazy." So. You guys are definitely in for a treat, and you guys are definitely going to see a whole different side of USAFBL. So this could either make me or you guys will literally burn me at the stake. So we will see. We'll get into it. I think what he's saying is this is about to be a fire episode. So grab some popcorn and a drink and sit back because this is going to be great. 
definitely definitely so all right so starting from like the beginning so i was born in elmira new york upstate new york so i stayed there for the first five years of my life and i'd probably say like Some of the earlier memories of New York would be like, I know we lived in like a greenhouse, like a two-story greenhouse, Like definitely a green, suburban. like It's green, like a, not like not a, like a greenhouse, like you grow plants and it's like it's actually green, right? yeah, it's the color green. Good, Okay. good clarification, good clarification. Got I don't want you. people being like, this guy lives next to plants, like. <laughs> See, I grew up on a farm and there's greenhouses all over the place. So that's like what my mind went to was, oh, hey, Levine grew up with, with the corn. <laughs> It was definitely suburbs. As, I mean, it was definitely in the suburbs for sure. I remember like a lot of like landish, like just open land, no rural trees, anything like that. It was really kind of like farmland and stuff like that. And then I know like it snowed a lot. I remember like driving in the car with my parents and there was like just a tunnel of snow. But now as an adult, like looking back, I'm like, no, the snow plows would literally... plow all the snow off to the side and make these huge banks. And so I'm basically driving down the highway with huge banks of snow on both sides. Yeah, but when you're like two feet tall, those are huge. Definitely. I mean, you're in the car seat and you're looking over and you're like, yeah, like for you, like, you know, a 10 foot wall is pretty massive. So. Right. So that part of New York, uh, being geography, what word, geography, geography, what word am I looking for there? Being challenged with geography, I know New York and I know like Niagara Falls, and I know New York City. Where does that play into there? Because it's a pretty big state right there. No, definitely. So that's going to be west. So west side of New York, like as the state. And so New York City is going to be like off over here. Elmira is going to be off to the west. Gotcha. Wait, is geographical the word I was looking for? I want to say yes. All right. Geographically challenged. Let's go with that. <laughs> Moving on. All right, hold on. We're going to pause. Okay. I got... crazy sunlight coming through my window black lighting me out <laughs> I thought you were joining that all-white school for a second. Why would you say? Well, it's still recorded. I got you. So go back and listen. You're going to crack up laughing. So the sunlight was shining, and you like your face just looked white. And I was like, I thought you're joining that all-white school you're talking about. Oh, man. <laughs> All right. Moving on. What's the next chapter of your life after West New York State? Yeah, so once we left New York, we moved to Nashville, Tennessee. So we lived in Nashville, Tennessee for 10 years, 10 years exact. So it's not like a round up or round down, like literally, literally 10 years. So Nashville for me, it really shaped who I who I am. So like I was born in New York, so I learned to talk in New York. And so like I spoke fast. New Yorkers in general, they just, they speak fast or some of them can speak fast, but in general, like New Yorkers are just known for talking really, really fast. South. So Nashville, Tennessee, I consider it South. Obviously you can go further South, but Nashville has a twang. Nashville also, depending on what parts of Nashville, like Tennessee, like if you're in Memphis, Memphis has like a real crazy slur, like they slur their words and Nashville like has kind of like the same kind of effect. And so like, A lot of people don't know or maybe not even kind of like realize that like you can't tell where I'm actually from until like I literally told you guys where I'm from based off of just how I talk. 
Gotcha. I always knew you had kind of like a, a stranger. I wouldn't even say strange, but like your accent was just kind of different. And that explains a lot. You went from New York to Nashville. You got that fast, uh, fast Southern sound, but and then something else isn't even in play there. You also got the, the braces thing going on now too. Yeah. So I've got a slight lips that goes with that as well, that I'm struggling to work through, you know, day by day. So definitely a, a struggle there for sure. But yeah, getting into like just how I talk being fast and then basically having this slur, we'll kind of like leave this on the back burner for uh, a little bit more down the episode for sure. But I just had this really, really fast Nashville slur mixed in with a little bit of twang. And it took me so long to get out of that. And uh, eventually like I live in Branson, Missouri and I'll get into that. But Anyways, Nashville, like it's, it's, uh, we lived more like in the grimy parts of Nashville. Like anybody that lives in Nashville, even today, like Nashville is an extremely expensive city to live in, even in the 90s. Like it was pretty expensive still in the 90s in comparison to like inflation, blah, blah, blah. But, we lived, uh, we lived more like the Gallatin, like Antioch area. And, uh, kind of grimy I'm not gonna lie like it's not necessarily like the best areas of town so I really got shaped into just the urban culture of Nashville which is it's kind of like its own culture within itself kind of like Houston Texas like there's no other place in like the country that's like Houston there's no other place in the country that's like Atlanta there's no other place in the country that's like New York City. And so like they all have their own like cultured version of like that city. And so Nashville really shaped me in that way, which is kind of interesting to look back on it for sure. Yeah, when I think of Nashville, I think of country music and that strip that has all the bars on it. It's like bar after bar after bar. And uh, I know Nashville's got a pretty good skateboarding scene as well for street skating. But other than that, I'm clueless on Nashville. Well, Nashville is definitely now, like, Nashville is just, uh, it's a very, very fun town. Bachelorette parties come through there, like, all the time. It's just a destination within itself. Country music is definitely, like, what Nashville is known for, but it's not really who Nashville is. Like, it's a very small portion, I guess, of what, like, Nashville actually is. And gotcha. so, coming into Nashville, uh, super young, I've always kind of been just a, an entrepreneur, just kind of like just a hustler, I guess, by nature. My first business ever was a candy business. So I was either five or six. I was either like in the first grade or the second grade. I can't remember. But back in the day in vending machines, you could get candy bars for like 60 cents. You can get a Snickers bar for like 60 cents, Milky Way. My go-to was Starburst. I loved Starburst as a kid. And so Starburst were actually 50 cents in the uh, vending machine back in the day. Came in a pack of 10. And so what your boy did was he would sell loose Starburst for 10 cents a piece. So kids would always have like a, a nickel or a dime or a quarter laying around. And so like they never had enough to buy a whole candy bar, but they can always go buy a Lucy from Levine for 10 cents. <laughs> or the chicken with the Lucy for 10 cents. 
I know. So here was the crazy thing, though. As and this, I came up with all this like myself. So this is what's absolutely wild. So you can sell ten Starburst, you know, for ten cents makes a dollar. So like, I could literally, if I can sell all of them, I can literally pocket fifty cents and keep a Starburst for me to have, like for the day. And so like I was making money and I was still getting my snacks for like the day, which is absolutely crazy. And For so, five, you said five years old, right? Five or six. yeah, I was five or six. And that's like how, like, that's how my mind just kind of works. But mainly because, you know, like I never really had a, a lot of pocket change or anything like that to really go get snacks or go Right. get, like, I love snacks. And so kind of remember this as I go into my story because I eventually, uh, eventually get into some medical issues with it but anyways love snacks never really had the money for snacks and so I tried to figure out a way to basically like how do I get snacks and how do I keep getting snacks and I came up with this if I can sell 10 of these Starbursts I can basically keep the chain going so like as soon as I had 50 cents I knew I was good where I can get another pack of Starburst and then like literally had a snack for myself which is kind of crazy and so I always had like this, like just hustle and bustle and just like, if you can't get it, you got to figure it out kind of mentality. Right. That's pretty crazy that five or six year didn't it? Because when I was that age, the most thing, I guess the biggest concern I had was which Power Ranger, which colored Power Ranger I was at recess or something, you know? So my mind, the last thing on my mind at that age was worried about money, but that's, that's impressive that that's what your, your thought process was at that age. And I mean, need to be, I mean, I, wasn't making any real substantial money at any given time. I just remember like I was doing that, but I don't ever remember me being like a baller with it. Like I was just like the candy king or anything like that. It was just like something that I did to kind of just get by. The candy king. I mean, it's, uh, I don't, I mean, I just, you know, kind of looking back at it I'm like, man, that's, that's kind of crazy, but yeah. And so I kind of, you know, fast forwarding a little bit, like, Growing up on like the rough side of town, I want to blame this more of just being like, you know, a creature within its own environment. So like the environment that we were in, you know, rough parts of town, um, you know, we lived blocks from the projects and stuff like that. And so like I basically got into the wrong crowd. I mean, we're talking, you know, sixth, seventh grade, like just wrong crowd people just like you know robbing stealing getting in trouble in school getting in fights just like just got into like kind of the wrong crowd and culture like hip-hop culture back then was like in the 90s like it was it was everything like there was just this whole like east coast west coast gang related like just culture that came along with it. And the crazy thing was when I was a kid, I wanted to be a gangster as a, as a job. Like when people were like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like literally, you know, people could be police officers, firefighters, astronauts, you know, whatever they wanted to pick. But like, for me, like, living you know in those parts of town like all of your heroes are you know people driving hoopties and they got subwoofers in their cars and big rims and lot wads of cash and all that those are all gangsters and drug dealers and like and so like for me like being that young and impressionable like 
you know, I didn't know any, you know, police officers, firefighters, astronauts, but I knew drug dealers and I saw how they were living and I saw them always having lots of cash and beautiful girls. And like, you want to be like those, like, at least for me, like I wanted to aspire to be like one of those people. And like in the nineties, like literally being a gangster was a literal career path, which is kind of crazy. It's kind of like today's day and age like you know you can be an OnlyFans model and be a millionaire now like being an OnlyFans model is like an actual career path where like you know it's not something that's you know basically you can be doing 10 years ago 20 years ago so it's just a different time different era right and I'm sure a lot of that was a uh, musically uh like you're impressioned by music for that as well if you're really into that culture and the music is I guess with where you're living at it's all just like a package deal yeah, so I'm really just kind of like, at that point, I was really kind of just a product of my own environment. And so sixth grade, seventh grade, like, I mean, it was a very, very weird time of my life because everybody I knew was into that lifestyle and I just got just sucked into that lifestyle. So let me ask you this. I didn't, I guess I never really thought of that with Nashville, but does Nashville have a pretty thick, like gang culture is there a lot of stuff like that popping off down there there's gang culture in all major cities i mean you go to yeah. any major city like and there's always you know gangs and so you go to atlanta there's gangs nashville there's gangs chicago los angeles mm -hmm. houston Dallas. i mean you name it like there's always going to be gang related activities really it's, i guess I never really thought of that thinking that you know just like how country that city is i wouldn't really have thought of but, you know, hearing you talk about it, I guess I could see it now because there's always a rough part of whatever town you're in. Yeah, every city has a rough part. You know, everybody, I love St. Louis, but like the last place you want to be is east side of St. Louis. And so it's just, <laughs> uh, you know, it's just rough parts of every town, every major city. And so when you kind of realize like, you know, Nashville is known for country music and the Grand Ole Opera, but you got to remember like, that's just a building and like, that's just a sector of that city. And so right. there's a tourist part that everybody's known for, but you know, there's the part where, you know, it's underfunded and no one basically ventures out over to. Yeah, that makes sense. I can see it now. Like I said, whenever I'm down in Nashville, that's all, that's all I see is the touristy part of it. I never even ventured out other than that when I go there. And I mean, there's no real reason for you to be going over there either. So, I mean, that's just where a lot of your locals and your minorities and just, uh, you know, lower class individuals and stuff live. And so, you know, if you're a tourist, that's, you know, not a place you kind of want to kind of venture out into anyways, but it's just, uh, it's just kind of the way things are. All right. Let me ask you this though. Whenever you were kind of transitioning into your, like where you wanted to be a, a, a gangster, what was your, parents thoughts on this like how did they what was their reaction to all this so we moved around a lot and so we moved around a lot primarily because I was an extremely bright individual as I can tell you with like you know my candy business at the age of five or six like I was extremely intelligent I'm still extremely intelligent and I give a lot of that to my parents because they they saw that in me but the problem was, is that they didn't have the resources really to put me in the best schools. And so we would, uh, my parents, you know, I bless, I'm still thankful to have them, but like they would literally try to put me in better school districts, even though we didn't live in those districts. 
And so sometimes they find out about us. Sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes we couldn't afford where we're at. And so we had to move. And so like we moved around a lot. So my parents were literally trying to give me the best life that they could with the resources that they had. And so for anybody that doesn't really like know how like the 90s basically is, the 90s as a minority is doo-doo. So the 90s, basically, if like if you're a minority, it is like we had opportunities, but it was gatekept. So like today, like, you know, if you're a minority, you're Asian, you're black, you're Hispanic, um, I don't know, any other like minority, like individual, like you can go get a job, go get a manager job and go get a high paying job because you had those opportunities and race was never really an issue. In the 90s, race was an issue and has been an issue pretty much for at least the next like 15 years, like probably until like 2005, maybe 2010, it pretty much kind of went away. But in the 90s, like if you're a minority, like you're going to get gatekept from getting a manager spot. Like they're just going to get you have the opportunity to get that position, that job, but they're going to gatekeep you from getting those positions unless it's like a black owned business or something like that, which is very rare. Right. Yeah, that's crazy. I never even, yeah, Lion, this story is getting deep, buddy. I know. That's what I'm trying to explain. And so like, it's, it's a lot of people are like, oh, how come you don't just get a job? Or how come your parents don't do this? How come your parents don't do that? Like they can apply for a thousand people, but you have to put on the application what race you are. So right. you check off black. It's like, mm, I don't know. Like, you know, and so they'll start like gatekeeping people from basically getting those positions and stuff like that. And I mean, you can do research and all that stuff. And, you know, that's been verified and stuff now, but that's how it literally was like in the 90s. So if you're a person of color or you're a minority, like it was a struggle, like trying to move up through the ranks in the 90s for sure. Right. And being a gangster at that young age wasn't a, you know, it was a more feasible option for you because of stuff like that adding to it. Well, just to clarify, I was never in a gang. I was basically doing gang gang activity, basically just petty theft, um, just just stupid stuff as a kid, and just I was uh, I actually haven't grown since I was twelve. So like, I had a massive growth spurt where I was growing like six inches a year type thing, and so. By seventh grade, like I was 5'11, 215 pounds. Like, so you're I, telling me you've been you for since you were 12. I just got fatter, but I never got taller. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I was literally since 12th grade or 12th, 12th, uh, 12 years old, like literally, you know, just 5'11 and 215 pounds. Like, I was a big, strong dude. And so, you know, I got involved with like the wrong people trying to fit in stuff like that and ended up being a bully and bullying people and taking lunch money and just whatever, just stupid stuff. And uh, I ended up uh, getting arrested for petty theft and running away. And uh, this is kind of where like the turning point for me was is when I got arrested, it was a juvenile juvenile. So like I got, you know, sent to juvenile hall and I was there for like a week, maybe a week and a half. I can't remember, but my uh, roommate was uh, Cody Marks. So Cody Marks basically was a adult version of what I could have been. Like I was this close to probably living a, 
basically just being a criminal for like the rest of my life, just being in and out of jail, stuff like that. Like that was the path I was down. And Cody Marks was in there for armed robbery and accessory to murder. So he ended up him and his like homeboys or whatnot, they robbed a convenience store. So they armed robbery, robbed the convenience store, and one of his guys got nervous and shot the clerk. Wow. And so he, because he was there and he was part of it, he was an accessory to murder, which is, that's bad, like real bad. So I ended up, you know, going home, getting released and all that. And I later like, you know, checked into his story, um, I think somewhere in like high school or whatnot, just because I remember this guy and I was just like, all right, cool. But yeah, he did, uh, he did like four, he didn't do, he got sentenced to like 42 years, uh, 38 of those without parole or something like that. Wow. Yeah. And they only took like, I don't know, like $600, but because of the murder, like, you know, that pretty much like put him over the edge. So like, him being my roommate, him literally like telling me his story, him telling me like how much like he regrets it. Like his life is done. He was 17. So he was 17. They tried him as an adult and like his life was done over something crazy, basically. Like armed robbery would probably get you like five years, especially like for petty cash. But I mean, like it could probably get you like five years. You got a good lawyer or whatever. He could have like, you know, probably changed his whole life around. But like now, you know, he's, he's done, done. Like he, he will probably die in there. And if he does get out, like he's got no life left. And so like his life is done. So like, he's literally giving me like this real world, like experience of like, you know, if you don't straighten up, you're going to end up like him and you're going to be done. So you're going to be dead or you're going to like die in prison, which is, you know, it's due to all the way around. Right. I'm sure that was an alarming experience for you to see how much older was he than you? Uh, four years, five years. Yes, yeah, crazy. I got arrested well, at twelve, and then he uh, he was seventeen. Well, I'm glad you didn't have that path in front of you, you know. But you, you know, you he got me it. out because, right. like, I don't think I would have changed until it was kind of like a scared straight because I was already in juvenile, which was like the first time I ever went, first and only time. Right. And so, like, you know, going to you know little kid jail is like you know kind of scary, at, you know, just within itself. And then you got someone in there that's you know basically like done. You're just like it's not what I want. Like it's not, right. not even remotely close. And so. Have you ever uh, thought about reaching out to him and just kind of like sending him a letter saying that he changed your life? I actually did. I actually, really? uh, uh, once I started working at like 16, like 15, six, 15 and a half, 16, whatever. But yeah, I ended up, uh, started putting money and stuff on his books. Sadly, he ended up passing away. Um, oh. yeah, I don't know. I didn't get a, like a full report, but I tried to put money on his books and they said that uh, he was no longer in the system. I bet that was a shock when you heard that. Yeah. And then it was definitely one of the eye openers. Like, I'm just like, yeah, like, you know, things can happen in there. And so they wouldn't give me any details or anything because I wasn't like, you know, police or family or anything, but right. it's basically been terminated. So I was like, oh, that's tough. It is tough. tough. So. You know, just when I think the story's deep, it's getting deeper and deeper. But yeah, that was the, and that was like, I've kind of had thoughts of kind of like, you know, going back into that lifestyle because like, as crappy as this is, I mean, I understand why people live that life. Like you could literally 
get mugged. You can mug some lady for a purse for two, 300 bucks. And, you know, it takes you five minutes and you can be done for the day. Like people don't realize, like, you know, you can rob somebody for their shoes, put them on eBay and sell them for a right. buck 50 and be done for the day. Like you can just do all this weird criminal activity and stealing and whatever. But I mean, like as crappy as that is, and like, I understand fully, like, you know, that's, that's not the way to go about, you know, doing things and all that. Like, it's extremely easy to do and extremely, but I mean, eventually, you know, it'll catch up to you. And so that's where the, the real problems and stuff with that is. And, you know, thank God we right. have a system where like, you know, people can't just go around doing that stuff for days. That's crazy. I got a, a, a story, which ain't, it's not like really adjacent to what you're saying, but uh, I have a buddy of mine, he's up from Canada and uh, he was at a concert one night and he was, you know, he had a lot to drink and he was going home with his wife at the time and he was drinking and driving and should not have been behind the wheel. But in, I think he was from Ontario, but he, when he came up to the stoplight, he seen this girl getting mugged and this guy was, had the knife out and everything. He was going to kill her potentially. He don't know, but he like had a split second to decide if he was going to help her or not. And he slammed on the gas, went up there, hit that dude. It killed him, saved the woman's life. And he panicked and left the scene. And then he said, like, the guilt and everything was just caught up with him. So he went and turned himself in the next morning. And at that point, it was a case of, like, you know, is he a hero? Is he a murderer? You know, should we, you know, take pity on him for what? You know, like, it was just like a whole yeah, bunch of yeah. confusion. And eventually, like, they overruled it to where they dropped the murder charges. But, you know, like, the the family of the lady that, you know, he saved was all, like, super supportive of what his decision was. But even though he was drinking and driving, so he's all these different, like, Oh, yeah, yeah. but as of right now you know everything's been dropped and he's in he's doing good and active member of society again i think it kind of scared him from drinking and driving but it just takes one thing to kind of like turn your turn your life around and stuff exactly cody cody marks man like literally changed my he got me pretty much put on the straight and narrow like you know being next to someone who you know, he clearly did something bad, but the fact that like, you know, he basically is doing life because of something that his buddy did, which had nothing to do with him. Like, you know, they're all obviously trying to rob the convenience store, but like, you know, he wasn't trying to do life for it. And so like, it kind of got me thinking like, you know, I can't be responsible for the things that, you know, the people that I'm doing and hanging out with and stuff like that, like they'll get you in trouble and stuff. And so I eventually got out of that stage. Um, real real fast like that was definitely like a, it was two slaps in the face like it that hit me that hit me pretty hard mm-hmm. and so from there we ended up moving to the franklin area of nashville which is pretty close to brentwood anybody that's familiar with like the brentwood franklin area of nashville this is the upper class like super expensive it's literally the most expensive zip codes i think in tennessee if i'm not mistaken like i think like the cheapest house there is like even today like i think the cheapest house is like 400 grand like i mean it's like if you have a four hundred thousand dollar house like you live in like a shack basically and that like in brentwood like it's absolutely crazy we never like actually like lived in that area we actually stayed in like I think an extended stay, like kind of hotel type of deal, kind of getting out of the whole like just rough side of town. And we basically, uh, you know, drove basically to like the next like school district over to try to get into like, you know, a much better school, get out of that whole lifestyle stuff like that. A fresh start. A fresh start. Yeah. 
And so I still had like a lot of just like anger issues. And so we got put into, I got put into football. And so football is a great way of just letting off steam. I was, uh, you know, still a, a huge kid at this point, like, you know, seventh grade, eighth grade, like 215 pounds, like 5'11", just a big dude. So football for middle school, like killing it, like absolutely killing it at that point. They wanted to put me at running back super fast. The problem with uh, being at running back was, is that you couldn't hit people. And so I had a lot of like anger issues and stuff and literally told the coach, like, I, I want to hit people. And he's like, what do you mean like hit people? And I was like, dude, I want to some people up and so like coach is like well we got we need a we need a left tackle like you can literally like you know hit people over there and I'm like but we really would love you to be a running back because I'm like I was running over people like just stiff arming like just like just making people look stupid and stuff and they're like dude you really do really really well you're sure and I'm like dude like I'm not doing that like I I I've got to like hurt some people and so put in defensive left tackle. And when I say like I was, was just fucking people up, like I was getting people up. Like <laughs> if you were a running back coming into my pocket, like I didn't like just tackle you. Like I tackled through you. Like you would come at me full speed and I would tackle you and then literally push you back three feet into the ground, like just destroying people. Like it got to a point where like teams like found out about me and they would purposely never run the ball on my side of the field, like destroying yeah, like, people. We're not messing with the candy king. We know what he's about. Exactly. And so I ran defensive tackles from seventh end of seventh grade seventh grade so I ran it from like seventh grade to like freshman year of high school so it was a lot of it was a lot of fun but anybody that knows like Brentwood Franklin area that's the suburbs of Nashville and so this is where like skateboarding culture BMX riding um just like all the things that just screams like suburban, like basically kind of got like distilled into me because from here, like all I knew was like inner city life. And so I got exposed to, you know, shopping malls and like all kinds of cool stuff. So like I went from literally like an all black school forever, basically to an all white school. So I was like one of, I think like three or four people that were like, that were just, you know, black of African descent, like in that school. So like I was introduced to Jinkos back in the nineties, uh, late nineties. Yeah. I was introduced to um, ICP, which they're out of Nashville. Um, I'm introduced to like just rock um, and screamo music. I used to Lincoln park. Like I used to love all that stuff, uh, green day and, I got introduced to like all of that stuff. So I went from like pretty much only listening to rap, hip hop, and I don't think trap music, trap music wasn't even a thing back then. So really just rap and hip hop, pretty mm -hmm. much all I listened to. And now I got exposed to like actual bands and like, like rock, screamo music, um, 
there's one brand, man, I'm, I'm gonna have to come back to it, but I, there's one group and it's just like, it's not coming to me. And I used to listen to all the time, but I got interviews just for it. I absolutely loved it. And I got just the metal and like, I mean, I got into all of that. And so like, I was just introduced was, to it. Was it offspring? No, but I know who they are. Um, Static X and Corn. Um, right. Follow the just, leader. That was like a big thing when I was in school. Like they were all like into that. As soon as that came out, it was done. Right. I was just trying to think of like bands that my school played because my school is like 99.9% .9 all white people. It was out in the country in the middle of nowhere in Indiana. And I think we might've had two, two people that wasn't white in there. So I get what you're saying, how, you know, just moving to something like that and maybe filling out a place for a second, but you eventually adapted to it, right? Yeah, eventually adapted to it. Um, it was weird because everybody back in the 90s had bicycles and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I had a little Huffy bike. I couldn't afford the uh, the Mongoose, um, but I got me a little Huffy with the pegs. And so Is there nothing wrong with Huffy from back in the day. Hey, I'll take what I can get. I'll take what I can get. <laughs> so, but yeah, we used to, I was, uh, it was weird. My parents didn't know I was theoretically like dirt BMX biking, but uh, wouldn't let me skateboard. But uh, I was out there like, literally on these dirt like i can't remember where it was but like it was like a construction site they were like building stuff and they had like the mounds of dirt and like we were literally like 20 mile per hour in it like just hopping off of stuff and just catching crazy air and all all kinds of weird stuff but theoretically like bmxing was like my thing that i was able to do without like getting in trouble and stuff for but this is kind of where like I actually got introduced into fingerboarding because I loved BMX and like I had like other friends and stuff that also had bikes and we're all doing that. It got me exposed into skateboarding, into, you know, the X Games and all that stuff. Like I could honestly say like if I would have stayed inner city, like I would have never been experienced to that. And so my parents wouldn't let me skateboard and I ended up seeing a fingerboarding set at a dollar general and uh Wait, what, my parents what year was this 96 ish that's a pre-tech deck yeah pre-tech deck so this is like the x games like literally just came out like it wasn't even it was like brand new type of thing like and so, like, I wanted to skateboard, but my parents wouldn't let me skateboard because everybody that skateboards breaks teeth and bones and just all kinds of stuff. And so, you know, it sucks, but I get it. And so... Because you definitely wouldn't break teeth on a bicycle. Yeah, well, they didn't know I was out there, like, BMXing and stuff. Directly, right. I could have skateboarded, but I'd have to find a skateboard and find people to, like, go do it. So, like, I was, right. like, everybody in the 90s had a bike. That's just how you got around as a kid, and so. Well, I will say that, you know, being that height in 215 pounds, I think it would have been easier to ride a bike than, you know, learn on a skateboard. Just from, like, my just, my thought process on it there. I mean, it, it, it could be. Um yeah, I mean, it could be. They didn't really have a lot of flat ground stuff back then either like they do right. like now and stuff. It was pretty much just like vert and dirt biking, dirt BMXing yeah. basically type of stuff. So yeah, back in the mid-90s or whatever. But yeah, it was uh, definitely an ordeal for sure. But yeah, um, I saw the Mountain Dew kit with the fingerboard and I was like, oh, like I want that. Like I didn't even know that you could do tricks on this. I just wanted it because like, you know, skateboarding was really, really cool. And I just mm -hmm. love skateboarding and got into it and stuff. 
And uh, my parents actually, you know, I got it as an early birthday present, basically, and uh, they got it for me. And I was messing around with it for for quite a while. Um, I brought it to school once and I was kind of messing around with it. And then like some other kids had like, this is like, all right, so let me fast forward. So like, I remember when the tech deck commercials came out and uh, they all had the pro graphics and stuff on the boards. This was like a huge, like huge ordeal and stuff. And so like, I remember like bringing like a, a tech deck to class and then realized that everybody else collected tech decks, but they only collected the hookup boards basically because, you know, they got these girls yeah. and stuff on them and all that. I mean, like, it was like, it was, that was the only ones that they collected. And so like, they would hit all the stores up basically looking for just the hookup boards. They leave all the rest, but they would grab the hookup boards. And so everybody be bragging about like what boards they had, how provocative the boards were. Like, you know, we're huh. teenage boys. Like, you know, it was just, uh, if you can get a, you know, a little titty slip in there and any one of the graphics, right. like, you know, we're all about it. So. Bro, let me take that tech tech to the bathroom. So I can warm up the chicken a little bit. If you get on the stand. So that's when like fingerboarding and stuff like that kind of pretty much got introduced to me, but nobody was doing tricks with them. Um, we would kind of fling them off like the like a mm -hmm. trapper keeper or a three ring binder type thing. If you're, you know, if you're old enough to even know what a trapper keeper is, but uh, that was pretty much all we did. No one was ollie. No one was really doing anything with them. They primarily we just collected them and whatnot until like like accidentally like six months after messing around with them, like accidentally snapped the board in an ollie, and that's when I got like just hooked. And mm -hmm. so there was a pretty much from there to like a two year part where I was just like trying to do as much stuff as possible and then tech decks fingers of fury came out on vhs and i had to have it and so i got my parents to basically buy it for me and then i was able to see the craziest tricks on this video being done and i'm like blown away because like i'm sitting here like i can i i think i learned to kickflip i was definitely doing shoves I definitely knew I was not doing like a tray flip or anything like that. It was very basic stuff until I saw this like video of them doing it. And I'm like, okay, this is, this is absolutely wild. I, I've got a lot to like learn and stuff. And so this was like a part of my life where like, I realized that like things were actually possible. And so like, it really drew me to basically just get better at this. And so fingerboarding, like it was just like, it was always there. And so I don't know when flying fingers came in, but flying fingers, the V the VHS came in. I talked I found, I looked on the library and I found that like, that was an actual movie and I got my parents to buy it um, online. I can't remember like how things worked back then pre-internet. Um, but I was able to find the video on like, I don't know where it was, but basically we got it. And it, that movie was more of a like how-to tutorial for like a lot of the tricks, if you guys have never watched mm -hmm. that video. And so that video showed you how to do like a huge amount of tricks. Um, they kind of showed you how to do the ollie, kickflip, all that stuff. And so from there, like I really wanted to make my own movies 
but uh no camcorder there was no cell phones back then so like there wasn't really like a way to actually make movies and so like i made a whole script of my first edit which i actually found like a couple years ago in a bunch of like random boxes that i've been toting around my entire life which is kind of you crazy do you realize you absolutely have to upload that now I will. I will definitely do that. And uh, Tech Deck Obstacles, which was kind of crazy. I used to design Tech Deck Parks because eventually the whole reason why like I got my first job was to buy Tech Deck Obstacles to make a Tech Deck Park. And uh, if you guys remember like how expensive these ramps were, they're like 20 bucks for a kicker, half of the build-a-block like in the middle like connector piece and then like a little mini half pipe basically a mini ramp you're talking about the ones back in the day right back in the day yeah and then right, you can yeah. get like the second portion of it and it was like a double stair uh it was a yeah. stair with a double rail and then the yeah. other one i think had just a kicker or something like that on it but you I have think to there's literally also the bank there's a bank with a rail yeah too. there's a bank rail yeah i remember that too so mm -hmm. But it only came as a half. And so, like, you had to buy two of them to put together one four-piece, like, obstacle. And those things were, like, 20 bucks for a half. So, like, 40 bucks for the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can't just find them, like, all, like, all over the place. So, like, you may go to Walmart. You might be able to find, like, one or two. You may go to, like, Toys R Us. If, you know, you remember those back in the day. You might find, like, one or two. And then you can go to, like, Kmart and go find, like, another, like, one or two. And so, like, that was, like, my journey when I first, like, started working was basically trying to find these, like, obstacles and stuff. And so I ended up accumulating, like, a huge amount of tech tech obstacles. And then somewhere down the line, like, when I turned, like, 17, 18, I just kind of got out of fingerboarding, like, I wasn't doing sports anymore. Like sophomore year, I stopped doing sports. I played football freshman year, wrestled uh, sophomore year. And then I just floated through life, like junior and senior year of high school. And so let me backpedal a little bit. So Nashville, 10 years. And then like I started freshman year at Branson or at Brentwood High School. And then I ended up moving to Branson, Missouri. And so Branson, Missouri, I started in 2001. Oh, man. I felt that one coming. All right. So I started, all right. So I moved to Branson, Missouri in 2001. So my father, who who I love and respect. He's actually no longer with me. Um, you know, God rest his soul, RIP. He uh he was the bass player for the Commodores. So we moved to Nashville basically to pursue a career for him in the music industry. He actually uh he looks just like Charlie Pride. And for those that aren't familiar with like who Charlie Pride is, he's basically the only real successful country music star from like the old days. And so he looks just like him. My dad actually wrote Easy Lady and Brick House, which are like huge, huge, huge songs. And like, the song, uh, like the, she's a brick. She's a brick. Yeah. Yeah. Wrote my that? father wrote that. Wow. 
problem is, is that he was 16 when he wrote those. And my grandfather didn't want him to be part of like that group, the Commodores. And so he actually left home and then signed under an alias. And so he was never able to get any of the credit for writing those songs or any of the royalties. Like he made money during the time, but he like once he like left that group, like he was never able to like get any financial compensation for any of the stuff that he was doing while he was with them. Those are some big hits too. If he could have got his name on there, you know, who knows how much money he could have brought in from that. No, I know it would have changed our lives and stuff like that forever. Um, maybe for the better, but it's hard to say. Um, it definitely would have changed the course. Like struggle builds life characters. Sometimes it, like it builds your just persona. No, definitely. I mean, everything that I went through as I kind of like, you know, tell you this whole journey, it literally like, defines who I am and so like if any parts of this really would have changed like if I wasn't in certain areas and certain times of my life like I wouldn't be where I am like today and so like it definitely definitely contributes a lot so all right so yeah so Nashville didn't work out for him I don't know if it was just gatekeeping or whatnot I honestly don't know um it was they never really kind of went into detail with what happened in Nashville, why they were trying to kind of pursue that career and whatnot. And so it didn't end up working out in Nashville. And so we moved to Branson, Missouri. So for anyone that's familiar with Branson, Missouri, it is a smaller version of Las Vegas minus the casinos. And so Branson, Missouri is a huge tourist town. It's got all kinds of like amusement parks, um, just shows there's shows out there's just so many different shows and stuff like that here just like las vegas has there's a lot of amusement parks and rides and attractions and restaurants and food and it's just it's a it's like pigeon forge or uh wisconsin west Dells. like it's one of those type places and so we ended up moving here and uh my dad was able to get a show off the ground for i think like two years three years and uh, we had a show here in Branson. It's called the uh, Tribute to Charlie Pride Show. I can't remember the years. I may have to look back into that and see what years they were. I may drop them above my head on the screen. But we had a show on the strip, which was kind of cool. It wasn't like anything like too crazy. I mean, we had crowds of like, you know, 400 people, something like that. So it was like, you know, still big, but not big enough to like make life changing money, I guess you would say. But it ended up working for a little while, and then uh, his health got to the best of him, and so he was unable to continue to do those shows. And so I went to school in Branson. I ended up graduating there, and uh, this school was, you know, predominantly all white. Um, I think I was literally one of four or five people at the time when I graduated, you know, that were, you know, black or a person of color. And so still being, like, in the suburbs that Branson is, like... It was kind of different because this was clearly this was more country than the suburbs of Nashville. And so people, I mean, like trucks and farmland and stuff like that, like that was pretty predominant out here in Branson, Missouri. There was just a lot of like country living, hunting, fishing. We lived like in the Ozarks, basically, of the of Missouri. And so it was like a lot of outdoorsy stuff going on and stuff. And so 
definitely a culture shock for me because, you know, obviously hunting and fishing and stuff was never anything that I ever kind of got into, but that was pretty predominant out here. We had a lot of lakes and stuff like that. And so people went boating and just touristy type stuff. And so ended up basically just kind of uh, working and living life a little bit, um, getting through high school and kind of figuring out what I kind of wanted to do. And basically graduated from high school. Actually, let me backtrack there. So I started my second business um, sophomore year of high school. So I started a landscaping business. We moved into Point Royale when we moved into Branson, which is a golf resort. Uh, we had a little condo in there. And so I mowed yards in the summer. So I somehow i don't even know how i i think my dad gave me the money to buy a mower for 100 bucks at walmart it's just a push mower not even mm -hmm. self-propelled like a straight up push mower and i had uh hedge clippers that i used as a weed eater uh, my parents didn't trust me with a weed eater and i had a broom that i used to brush all the clippings like all back onto their uh yard and stuff and so i literally went from door to door to all these houses basically and some of these were like big houses like in Port Real where like the golf course and stuff was and then it's uh absolutely crazy but yeah everybody was like no uh we've already got a guy his name's uh Mike Crony and I went to like every single house and everybody pretty much said the same thing Mike Crony mows my yard Mike Crony mows my yard uh, you have to, if you're looking for a job, you should go talk to my crony. And I'm like, okay, that's crazy. So I ended up picking up four accounts, uh, four houses. And so I ended up mowing them every two weeks for 25 bucks. And so I was making a hundred bucks every two weeks and I was able to get it done in about four hours, four and a half, uh, if I walk fast. And uh, for, you know, a high school kid, like, like in the 2000s early 2000s like that was uh that was a lot of cash because you know minimum wage in branson was 515 and okay, so for making 50 cent profit to 100 bucks a week i know and so like you know all my friends were like yeah i'm working retail like where do you work i'm like oh i work at abercrombie and fitch i'm making like seven bucks or eight bucks i don't think it was eight it was more like six or seven bucks um that seems really really high but yeah you know i was definitely balling out because like nobody was making you know the money that i was making especially right. like theoretically i wasn't even paying i wouldn't say that i definitely wasn't reporting this <laughs> to the proper agencies does anybody that mows grass report that though um you're supposed to i don't want to get into that i don't know if uh anybody's listening that's important they're you know part of the yeah the tax bureau, but, uh, yeah, like we, you know, hundred bucks, basically straight cash in your pocket and, you know, nobody right. was, uh, taking anything out or anything like that. So it was like pretty basically pure profit after you paid for like your gas and all that stuff. So it was basically about it. And so, yeah, we're, I was definitely, I was balling for a high school kid for sure. And, uh, actually got bought out. So really? I'm walking my my mower down the street to my uh one of my accounts and a guy in a white truck pulls up to me. He's like, "Are you this uh are you this Levine guy?" And I'm like, "Yeah, what's going on?" He's like, "I'm Mike Crony." And I'm like, "Oh, hey, I've heard all about you. Like you probably mow like every house in this neighborhood." And he's like, "Yeah, I need help." <laughs> so <laughs> He was like, yeah, I need someone who's like ambitious and like wants to get after it and stuff. And I'm like, "Yeah, that's uh that's definitely me." And so uh, 
he's like, well, I need you to work. I'm like, well, I got to mow these four yards. And I'm like, why don't I just uh, mow these yards for you? You can keep the cash and uh, use my equipment and you just ride with me the whole day and we just mow yards. And so theoretically, like, I think he bought me out um maybe a merger i don't know like it was kind of a weird weird ordeal but he ended up so, taking over my accounts let, let me get this straight you're still making the same money right or were you i kept money? my accounts which i used his self-propelling mowers and stuff right. and so but i still collected money from them to a certain point and then he basically took over my accounts and then i worked for him and he was paying me like 12 bucks an hour to landscape which was absolutely crazy back then it's like i said like minimum wage was like 515 and like the highest amount of money that any of my friends were making was like eight bucks like i think eight or 850 was like the highest and i'm sitting here making 12 and i'm doing it after school and on the weekends and so like once this hit like junior year like ball and like finally picked up like you know started like all brand name like clothes and nikes and shoes like i was i was getting it like i was i was looking fresh i was looking real fresh but uh hmm. yeah so that was definitely kind of how that kind of turned out but I ended up working for him for like nine years and so um anybody who knew me back then like i was i was buff like buff buff like landscaping blue collar buff <laughs> like stupid so I ended up doing that and got me basically through through college, which was um, which was great. I ended up going to Ozarks Technical College for two years. Well, it's a two year degree, but it took me four years to get through it. And I'll explain this. So we had like I got in with FAFSA. So high school, I'm not gonna lie, like I didn't treat it seriously. I didn't take any AP classes. Like I took just dog water classes. And so when I got into college, I basically didn't have, I didn't take the ACT either, which is kind of crazy. And so basically I started at like the very bottom. So when I tested for college at the technical college, like they basically put me in like 040 and 050 classes. And so anybody that's been to college and knows anything about college, like freshman level classes start in the 100s. And so I'm starting at like before freshman at 040, 050. So my first year of college was getting me to the point to where I'm actually skilled enough to be able to actually take freshman level classes. So and then FAFSA basically, uh, I don't know, I got messed up with paperwork or something like that, but ended up having to pay like an entire year's worth of community mm -hmm. college out of pocket. And so it, and so instead of taking like, you know, 24 credits, like I was bare bone in it with like, just like 12 credits, like just enough to get, to actually make it into a semester. And so it took me four years to basically get a two-year degree and then ended up doing University of Phoenix and got my bachelor's degree. And so the statistics for basically doing an online college is pretty low of actually like passing and graduating, which is crazy. I had no plans of getting my master's degree until the student loan bill came in. And so mm -hmm. I tried to get a job like everywhere. Like I tried everywhere in Branson, everywhere in Springfield, Missouri. I was looking at like other states and cities like nearby, like Fayetteville, Memphis, um, Tulsa, Oklahoma City, Kansas City, St. Louis. Man, I've, I applied everywhere 
What what kind of job were you looking for at that time though? Um, accounting. So I majored in accounting and, uh, I guess I kind of minored in psychology, mm-hmm. but, um, accounting was my major finance was really where I was looking at. I really wanted to be a financial planner yeah. because like I had a knack for just basically like helping people with their money problems because like I just really, really smart and savvy and just really great with money. And so like, for me, like I loved money and I loved like what money does for people and what you can do with it. And like the lifestyle that like, when you grow up poor, like you pretty much know, like you have a deeper appreciation for it. And so when you don't have it, like it becomes like your goal to go get it. And so, like, if you grow up with, you know, middle class or even upper class, like, your appreciation for money isn't as strong as someone who's never had it. It's kind of like water in the desert, you know, like, if you're in an air-conditioned, like, building, you know, water doesn't really mean that much to you. But if you're in the desert, water is everything. And so, it's kind of like that concept. And so, for me, like, I just didn't want, I was just basically trying to find any accounting job, whatever I could basically find that was entry level where I can just get and get into. And like, everybody wanted experience. And there was this whole point in time where people want experience, but like, they wouldn't give it to you. Like, how are you supposed to get experience if they don't hire you? And you can't get hired unless I have experience. And so it was right. this whole pitch 22. Yeah, just rotating cycle of like, how do I get it if you're not going to give it to me? And so I ended up basically just being a server um, like back in, I don't even know the years on this. I think it was like 2013. Um, I don't, I can't remember. But anyways, I was a server for like seven years uh, down at the landing. And so the landing is basically like a huge like boardwalk um, type of atmosphere. Like there's a like the lake and stuff was behind it, and the boardwalk is like right there in the lake. And there's like restaurants and like bars and like all kinds of stuff going on down there. It's like that's where all the money was. And so I'm like, all right, I'm definitely gonna go get me a job down there. And so I ended up going down there, making great money, and uh, I mean, so great of money. I was actually able to buy my first house, well, directly my only house so far with server pay like we're making like 200 250 dollars a night like crazy money down there like it was a tourist town summertime like the money was just great and so i ended up working at a place called uh texas landing cattle which they're no longer there um they got uh once they bought out their lease ended or whatever the rents down there are so crazy they ended up getting out of their 10-year lease but anyways um and so I was able to like kind of like buy a house and stuff like that. But anyways, like the student loan bill came in and uh, like, I'm just like, dude, I can't, I can't pay this. This is $800 a month. And so like, they're like, well, we can go off your income. And I'm like, yeah, you don't want that. Um, so I'm like, okay. So ended up going <laughs> back to school to defer paying student loans. And so Went back to school. It took me three years to get my two-year master's degree. Um, I really wasn't in a rush, honestly, to go get it. I was pretty much just kind of slow playing it as much as possible. So I ended up getting an MBA, uh, major in finance, minor in psychology. And so I got out and once again, I'm like, I really, really got to find a job because like, I know that student loan bill is coming in and, uh, same thing. Couldn't find a job to save my life. 
So I ended up, all right, so a buddy of mine, his name is Mike Cluster. He and me, like, we were like two bees in a pod. We used to work together at Texas Lane and Cattle, how I knew him. And then he was, um, I don't know if he was like friends or his associate, but he was, uh, he knew a guy named Tico, Tico Amaya. He had a business idea of basically running a party bus shuttle route from bar to bar to bar in our city. And he was talking to Mike and Mike was like, yeah, you need to talk to my buddy Levine. Like he is like He's super, amazing. yeah, he's the, he knows business. He knows like if anybody can help you get this started, it's going to be him. And so he uh, met up with me and stuff. And so like, he's like pitching me this idea and I'm like bar hopping shuttle route. Like it only run like three hours out of the day type deal from like two to like mm -hmm. one o'clock in the morning to like the bars close or whatever. And basically it just goes on a route and you hop on, go to the next bar, hop off type deal. You pay a pass. And uh, I was kind of going the numbers and stuff. Cause I'm like, I don't know, man. Like, it seems like, I don't think, I, don't, I mean, for me, I didn't seem like there was enough people. Plus it's a tourist town. So there's like in season and off season. So it would be like a six month out of the year type business. And so I'm like, I don't, I don't know, but I ran the numbers and stuff. And I was just like, if we can charge X amount of money, like this could be doable. We get enough people and we get the bars to pay and chip into the program. Cause you know, there's no drinking and driving and stuff All like right. that. And you're bringing in customers. And so bars would, you know, theoretically be like, yeah, let's do that. And so it was, uh, it was a fun, like ordeal. So we got it started. We got everything legal, got everything in the city and stuff and so we ended up picking up our first uh party bus and uh i talked to a buddy of mine that i graduated with call his name is jesse martinowski so he owns the cheeky monkey bar and so i talked with him and i'm like hey like what would it take for me to get you on our bar hopping shuttle route and uh he hit me with uh this is why i love having friends so like especially guy friends like they will tell you straight up like you are messing up and you're dropping the ball. And so Branson, Missouri has zero transportation at this time. There's no buses. There's no trains. There's no um, there's like one or two small taxi services, but they're like nowhere near like like large enough to be able to handle transportation in Branson. And so he hits me up and he's like, why are you focusing on this? And I'm like, what do you mean? means like, dude, there's people here that need to get back and forth to the airport, which is an hour away. People need to get to work. People need to get to the grocery store. People need, uh, people just need to go places besides just the bar. And I'm like, there's a huge amount of transportation that you're not even looking at. And so this so, is before Uber and all that, right? Yeah, this is before Uber came in. Uber was around, but Uber wasn't allowed in the city until like mm -hmm. six or seven years later. And that's eventually what ended up doing us in, which I'll kind of get to this story. But yeah, so for me, like we started this bar up and shutting route and then quickly realized that, you know, he was right. Like we should be doing way more. So we ended up basically just uh, picking up two vehicles and we ended up starting a taxi service or theoretically a shuttle service called the loop. And so we ran ourselves into the ground. I mean, 15 hour days, seven days a week, like, 
doing it, but we were killing it because there was a huge lack of transportation. We went out and we went to all the hotels, all the bars, all the restaurants, passed out cards, talked to managers, mm -hmm. shook hands, kissed babies type deal. Like <laughs> we, uh, we killed it. And we went from being basically a nobody to the largest private transportation service in Southwest Missouri. So we started off with two involved? vans, the loop shuttle service. Nice. And so, yeah, we went from just having two vans to having like 10 vans, three 15 passengers, three huge, like 20 to 28 passenger, like buses and a party bus. And so like, we're able to take like huge groups, taking the like golf excursions and weddings and all kinds of crazy stuff. Like we just killed it. And so for me, like, I'm like kind of getting to the point where like, I'm just like, we're, we're, we were running, but like we had at this point, like we got huge, like we had 30 employees. We actually had our own automotive shop, which I was tired of basically taking our vehicles to get them fixed by somebody else and paying retail. So we right. actually picked up a small shop, hired mechanics with their own tools to fix our stuff and ended up basically opening the shop to the public so that that could actually make money. And so instead of having now mechanic bills, now we're actually making money fixing vehicles which is crazy and uh we have like j1 students which are visa students because there's so many like job openings basically in the city of branson because it's a tourist town so in the summertime like you know there's like thirty thousand jobs but the city only has like twelve thousand people in it so like they had to bring in all of these uh visa workers and j1 students and stuff like that and to fill all those positions but you know none of them from here so they all needed transportation stuff like that and so like we like I said, we were literally killing it, like absolutely killing it. And so something bad happened. So something bad. Let me, let me backtrack before I even get to all that. So when we started The Loop, this is 2015, I had no idea how to market my business properly and how to design all of the things that I needed done. And so I didn't know how to do like business cards, rack cards, website design, any of that stuff. And so I was actually, uh, I went to a networking uh, business organization basically uh, called BNI. And that's actually where I met Brian O'Neill with Ozarks Marketing Group. So for you guys that are familiar with some of the earlier podcasts and stuff like that, Brian OMG with the crazy long goatee, he was at this uh, networking group. And so he's got 20, 30 years of experience in basically just graphic design work. And he's been in the city of Branson forever. So he knows Branson like the back of his thumb. And so like me and him became like two peas in a pod because we both loved the same things. I loved what he did. He loved what I did. And we both kind of like benefited off of each other because it's just, it's just, uh, it was just a great relationship and it still is. And so we're still great friends to this day. And uh, that's how Brian OMG got introduced. So he did all of the graphic design work for everything that we did with our business, our vehicle wraps, um, our signs on the building, like everything was all designed through him and stuff. And so like for me and him, like we had a great relationship and he basically is 
built he helped build my brand from like literally from nothing to being like the largest transportation company in southwest missouri and then something bad happened which was covid mm. so covid being in a you know a tourist town covid it stopped everything you know there was no tourist um there was locals but locals weren't doing anything they weren't working or anything and so for me having a transportation company that got people to the airport got people back and forth to work grocery store stuff like that all of a sudden now there's literally nothing and so covid was a good thing and a bad thing obviously but for me covid gave me the ability to kind of step back and take a look at what i was doing and so for me covid allowed me to be like all right you're working 60 70 hours a week at this point because you got a bunch of employees which by the way i have never not worked like a 70 hour week for like literally a decade now i've taken vacations don't get me wrong but even like while i'm recording this this is like a 70 hour work week and so i just i just work i work hard um i basically know the life that i could have been living and i know like if i don't want to go back to that life like you got to work hard for your stuff you got to do everything honestly and you've got to be able to just keep moving forward never look back and so for me i realized that like i'm literally working my ass off for the shuttle service that i started with a buddy and uh the problem was it wasn't my idea and it wasn't necessarily, you know, something sexy. Like no one's like, Hey, I want to start a cab company. That is sexy. That is something like you want to do for the rest of your life. Like it was great for the time. And it was great for me to like build up experience and be able to build on my resume and develop a lot of skills because like, you know, I handled all the back end stuff. And so my area of expertise is the back end stuff. That's the business licenses. Like every single city that I operate in or pick somebody up or drop somebody off in, I have to have a business license to operate in those cities. And so like I'm managing business licenses, I'm filing our taxes, I got employees, I'm doing payroll, like I'm doing all of the back end accounting, all the licenses, the insurances, like all the back end parts of the business, like that was me. And so I learned about all of it in school, but like to be able to apply it and use it in real life, that's a whole nother like, that's a whole nother ball game. Right. Whole nother layer to the puzzle there. No, definitely. And so I got to a point where COVID hit and I really started thinking and I'm just like, this isn't really what I want to be doing. Like, it's fun. I can do it, but I'm not passionate about it. And so I'm sitting here with a business that's not making any money. I've got employees. So I have to lay people off um, and just like no one at the time knew when COVID was going to be over and like, it just looked bad. It looks real bad. And so I basically decided to follow my passions and start up a fingerboarding league. I went to, this is during COVID. And so there wasn't really a lot of events, but the events that were happening, I went to them. I went to all of them. And so, like, I went out to uh, SoCal G8 Sessions. I went to their shop, and I talked to George out there and uh, got to meet him, see the shop, and, like, 
literally just kind of picking his brain and stuff about the industry. I went out to this in Denver, um, Colorado, and went to their shop and talked with Mike Sherrill. And like, if you guys haven't seen that episode on the podcast, that is a great episode. We go deep into detail over that. But I mean, he gave me a lot of insight and stuff. I mean, I went to uh, Grind Finger Boards event, Chicken Fingers, like the very first one. So went you're to probably the one in Indianapolis as well. Yeah, I went to the Indianapolis one with the uh, the name that we shall not name. Um, so, whenever you were doing all these, did you still have the loop? Currently? I did. We had the loop. Um, There's nothing going on. I mean, right? It was the back burner type thing for you at that point. Yeah, I was basically venturing out and seeing if there was a way for me to start hosting events and stuff like that. I went out to like you know. um, Las Vegas with Nostalgia B. I went to the very first Sin City session. So I went to meetups. I went to stores. I went to anybody basically where I can just kind of get information because I'm looking online and there really isn't a lot going on, but it's also COVID. And so I'm like, I really want to like host events and I really want to uh, fingerboard. That's really like my passion. Like my ultimate goal is to figure out a way to make a living fingerboarding. I walked into Walmart and there was a door greeter and he was like 70 and looked miserable. And then I looked and I saw, and I found a guy, uh, his Instagram handle is Nestor FB, which I'm sure <laughs> we all know the, uh, the older gentleman, I think he's out in like Spain or Portugal or someplace. I'm not sure he's out of the country, but he just looks like he's living his best life. And I'm like, I've got health issues. Like I've got diabetes uh, type two. So I'm like, I can theoretically, I could manage it if I, you know, stopped eating sugar and a bunch of crap. But anyways, like I've got maybe 15 years right now left in my life where of just like being able to work really, really hard. And so before my health kind of gets into it, because no male in my family has lived past 60, like nobody. And so me already having diabetes, already having like health issues. I'm like, all right, well, I got probably 15 years before like my health is going to get to a point where I can't like work anymore. And so I would love, my goal is to basically just figure out a way to like, how do I set something up long-term where I could be doing this when I'm 70, when I'm Nestor's age? Because retirement, it's, it's honestly, it's a, it's a dream. It's always been a dream, but like, realistically, like I doubt anybody's going to realistically be able to retire, especially now in today's economy. This is before all of this inflation stuff even happened, but now like retiring is just like, it's not even possible. And so if I'm going to work until I die, like I would want to basically be doing something that I love to do. And so I'm kind of jealous of Mike Snyder. I mean, I'll go out and I'll say it like, Mike Snyder, he's living his best life, in my opinion. Like, he's making products, he's hosting events, he's got his own warehouse of parks. Like, he's got like five, six parks in his house. Like, for me, like, Mike Snyder made it. Like, he makes a living off of fingerboarding. Whether you like that, respect that, or don't even care for it, whatever your opinions are, like, I think that we can all agree that, like, if you love fingerboarding, like, Mike Snyder made it. I mean, you you probably agree. I, yeah, I would definitely agree. He uh, is that something that you're striving for right now? Is that that outlook, that retirement type thing in fingerboarding? Well, no, I'm basically looking at 
trying to build something that allows me an empire in the fingerboard community yes yes and no and so in order for me to be able to be more like mike snyder where you're just kind of living your life doing what you want which is ideally just fingerboarding all day like i would love to just make just fingerboard all day that's literally what i want to do and so you're you're talking about that but you know to an extent i feel like right now currently you're you kind of got that going on no i've got pieces of it yeah it's just uh podcast the the competitions i mean you're 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 stepping there well i'm definitely moving forward in that direction for sure like that's the for me that's the goal the goal is to basically create all of these projects which you know by me creating this stuff it also benefits the community as a whole so it's kind of like you know this whole full circle thing so it's like the more i can give to you guys the more i can get from you guys and so because i can't get anything unless i give it first and so a lot of people don't understand this concept but it works literally in everything you want a favor give a favor first exactly. you want a ride give a ride first you want someone to cook you dinner, cook them dinner first. Like if you can basically make the first move, you essentially can get that in return. And sometimes you can get that two times back in return. And so like, if you like give someone a ride that needs a ride after work, like they're going to be like forever in your, like in your debt at that point, you know, they're going to be like, I definitely owe you one, maybe two. Like it just kind of depends, but like definitely helping people. I don't say you should help people just to like respect things in return, but I'm just saying that like helping people definitely has its benefits. Let me, let me backtrack a little bit. When you were talking about looking for fingerboard stuff, you know, like looking for the, the events and all that, did you, was that like super nerve wracking for you to realize that you have this great thing going on with loop, even though through COVID, and potentially transferring everything over to something that you didn't even know what it would take off or not. So when I had the shuttle service, my margins were paper thin. I mean, like 5%, 10%, like at best. And so the problems with having margins that low, so anybody who's not accustomed to the business world, a company needs to have a minimum of 20% profit margin to be operational and comfortable otherwise like you know you're going to have cash deficiencies where you know you're going to have highs and lows and stuff like that when i mean like lows like you know you might struggle to make payroll type lows and so like you need to have a 20 percent profit margin comfortably to be able to survive and so for me a business that's running five percent ten percent margins it is very 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 bad and so I actually never paid myself the entire seven years that I ran the loop because my margins were so low. So I made all of my money by day trading and swing trading and whatever, like just side hustles and stuff that we have. Um, Sometimes like I would have, I'd buy and flip things and make money that way. But I mean, for the most part, like, I'm kind of like the money whisperer because I literally spent my entire life researching money, like how it moves, like how, and so like I have, I went to, you know, college and got an MBA and I like my, one of my minors was like economics and like just knowing how the world works, how money works, how like money moves. And so 
realizing like all of this stuff, like I'm able to predict swings in the market. And so like, if there's a bombing in Syria, I know that production of oil is going to drive, you know, the price of the gas basically by the barrel up, which means in two or three weeks, you're going to have a 30, 40 cent increase at the pump just because of that, which a lot of people are like, how do you know that? And I'm like, yeah, sure enough, sure. 40, 40 cents, like higher at the pump. And so like, understanding like how markets move how like the consumer price index reports and all the other like financial reports and stuff that come out every corner uh company earnings all that stuff i mean i i'm i'm tuned into that stuff like i probably spend five hours ten hours a week just keeping up with the markets even if i'm not even trading like i still keep up with the markets i can tell you everything that's going on bitcoin today you probably don't even know this but today's uh february 2nd bitcoin just hit 50 50 grand it just broke that price index for that so mm -hmm. and so etfs are literally just driving everything up but basically day trading is where i made all of my money that's where i just make my income which is crazy so i it's risky it's directly gambling when you look at it from the outside looking in but if you know what i know it's not really gambling it's really just educated guesses right and so i mean i'd make anywhere from two to three hundred dollars a day you know day trading with the problem is it's like i'm day trading with like 30 grand to make three hundred dollars which is nobody in their right mind should be doing this but Basically, I only I hit the bounces. And so like anybody that day trades, they know what the bounce is. I only need to get like a quarter, quarter of a point, half a point, and I can literally just time the bounces just right. And I can make 300 bucks in six minutes or 300 bucks in 30 minutes, like or 30 seconds, like it's just quick. You enter in, exit out, take your money, you're good for the day. And so the stock opens up in the morning and at nine and literally at 901 central time like i'm already done for the day as far as money goes and i go work in my business for 10 12 hours a day and so that's where all of my income and stuff came from it never came from my actual business because my margins were so thin that i really couldn't pay myself and otherwise i'd risk bankrupting my business and so when i basically COVID hit, I'm like, you know, I've got this business I'm working 60, 70 hours at not even making any money. And so, and I'm not passionate about it. And so that's why, like, I decided to pretty much just like, let's close the business, um, liquidate all the assets, and then basically just roll this into the next project. Is that something that you still do? Is that day trading stuff? I, I still uh day trade to this day. So I don't day trade anymore. I swing trade because I don't have the funds to day trade. You have to have an account right. with 25 grand in it, which that's, but I mean, I could have at one point, but I gave all of my uh, money basically to the community through the tour, I guess you would say. And so the tour, the tour is just, it's extremely expensive. I'm not quite ready to talk about it, but it is uh it's kind of crazy how I make the transition basically from the shuttle service to starting up USA FBL. Well, speaking of that and not speaking of it at the same time, Levine, are we doing do you have a listen to when to do today? We do. I don't know if I'm ready yet. Not I've ready got yet. one thing I've got to backtrack on. So let's do it. I forgot to talk about so when I was with the shuttle service. We did transportation for a Comic-Con. 
a comic con called vision con they were renting out the hilton convention center in branson missouri their contracts were too expensive for them to basically continue to operate there at that venue and so we used to do transportation for all of the workers getting people like to and from where they need to be like because the complex is so huge but the biggest thing for us was that we did all of the airport pickups for their vips so we rented yeah. out all of the big like black on black suvs and all that stuff and literally like drove up to the airport picked up all their special guests and literally drove them back into branson at the hotel and stuff and so we did that for a year maybe two i think we did it for two years and so they ended up leaving Branson and going to Springfield to a cheaper venue. And Brian OMG, who is on the non-for-profit board for VisionCon, he was like their marketing guy. I can't remember his official like role there, but uh, he brought the opportunity to me. He's like, hey, he loves, he loves VisionCon. He loves Comic-Cons. I love Comic-Cons. I got involved with them through that. And it actually opened up my eyes into more Comic-Cons, which I could give you guys a huge list of Comic-Cons I like to go to. But uh, mm -hmm. he's like, there's a, there's was a city con here that's no longer here. Like you should take over those contracts and keep the Comic-Con alive. And I'm like, Brian, like, the f like <laughs> you have... You have guys that are like, it's not going to work. We're going to completely abandon this contract. And I'm like, they're doing it for a reason. And so found out why they did it because like, there's no way to make the numbers work. But we ended up taking over the Comic-Con. We called it Branson Con. So I theoretically still run Branson Con. I just haven't done an event for Branson Con since COVID. So we hosted... Branson Con in 2020, and we were the last Comic Con to run in 2021. So we wow. ran our con, I think, March 3rd. March, the following weekend, the entire city shut down because of COVID. Mm -hmm. And so we had special guests. We did a three day weekend. We, like, we, I owned and ran and operated this entire huge, like, $75,000 weekends, like absolutely like a lot of fun, crazy stuff. So these things still go on though. The, the Branson con is still a thing where it happens. Branson con could happen if I decide to, cause I own it. I run it. I just gotta, okay. if I want to start it back up again, I mean, I just got to find right. the resources to do so and go do it. So I didn't know if you meant like you still was involved in it and it was going without you or if it happened and, or it just wasn't happening currently. It's not happening currently. Like I said, if I wanted to, we could do another Comic-Con. But this was one of the things where I was looking at, you know, it's COVID. And I love Comic-Cons, but I'm not passionate about Comic-Cons. And so right. this is where the event experience for me kind of comes in. And so... I differ, yeah. Yeah, Branson because... Con, Branson Con. Con slash... USAFBL event. Well, that was the thing. I was like, well, how do I make a fingerboarding version of a Comic-Con? Because that was always like the goal. Because anybody that goes to a USAFBL event and has been to a Comic-Con, you, you can definitely feel elements of Comic-Cons in 
a USAFL event. And that's mm -hmm. the reason why is because for events, like that's my experience in events is hosting three-day weekend Comic-Cons with literally 100, 150 vendors, special guests. We had like people like Kevin Sorbo. We had Dragon Ball Z voice actors. We had uh, Jesse from Fast and the Furious. Like we had like all kinds of people at our Comic-Cons. Like you guys should definitely check them out. I still have the Facebook pages and stuff up. Uh, that still showcases that I'm sure like, you know, Brian OMG will probably put a couple uh, flyers and stuff above my head as I'm talking about it. But okay. so like dealing with special guests, transportation, logistics, hosting those events, dealing with contracts, deposits, insurance, guarantees on special guests, all that stuff. I mean, like we have some wild like guests that have some crazy, uh, crazy things that needed to be added into their contracts and stuff. Like they had one special guest that, you know, they needed a jar of M&Ms, but only certain colors. Um, we had just interesting things that you just kind of had to deal with and do and stuff like that. But yeah, that's where like the event portion for me, like everybody's like, what got you into events? And I'm like, I was already in events. And so for me, I'm like, I love Comic-Cons. I'm not extremely passionate about Comic-Cons. And so COVID for me allowed me to kind of like take a step back, reset and be like, you should do for once in your life, like you should be doing something that you want, you're passionate about, and you should just run with it. And so I took this opportunity. COVID just kind of gave me the ability to get out of everything, like pay off all my debts, fresh start, and literally like just do what I want to do. And so I started USAFBL. I basically said, Ransom Con, this will be the last year that I do it. I've always been entertaining the idea of doing another Comic-Con, but I can't do another Comic-Con and do USAFBL at the same time. I have to pick one of the two. Right. And so that's like the whole direction of where I went. And so for me, USAFBL is my passion. It's literally my life. It is all of my life savings, all of my hard work, everything that I've done in my life up until this point has been basically rolled into USAFBL. That's crazy. Like now that you're just taught, dude, there's, there's so many levels and so much going on behind the scenes with you that anybody that just sees you out in the streets or like anywhere, they're not going to realize that you're like, multiple business owner kind of deals you know it's just it's crazy it's wild it's uh that's why i think a lot of people were so skeptical when i came onto the scene because you know one i wasn't on the scene and i came out of nowhere and i came in with you know a pocket full of cash which you know my entire life savings my life's work full of just income ready to come in and just start doing things which Anybody that's noticed like in the fingerboarding industry, like people don't do things on this large of a level. Like no one just comes in and just starts like, you know what, I'm gonna start running stuff. Like, right. no, like people are like, I might start a board brand or I might start making obstacles, but no one comes in and says, you know what, like I'm going to start doing some stuff like on a large scale and you know, no track record, no, like, I'm going to make a post and see if this guy's a legitimate seller, like anybody done business with this guy, like, you know, the problem is I don't have any of that resume to basically to fall back on in the industry. So the industry was really, really skeptical of me coming in, especially not really knowing, like, who I am, stuff like that. And so even when I went out to, you know, talk to this at Temper with uh, mm -hmm. Mike Sherrill and 
standing with good vibes and went out there and just talking to all these people. Like they knew that I was serious once they talked to me, but like me chit-chatting with people online, they're like, who the hell is this guy? Like, you know, like <laughs> that was pretty much like my response that I was getting when I first came onto the set and rightfully so. And so like, if there was another little vine that came in and approached me, I would probably be a little skeptical too. I'm not going to lie. And so like, I get it. Well, hopefully but- this interview or this whole episode is going to, if anybody had any doubts to you to this day, is going to open their eyes a little bit more. And so, I mean, that's not really like the whole purpose of this interview, but I definitely feel like this is something that the industry needs to know and needs to understand because I am basically just you guys. I'm a hard worker. I had a rough start in life and like I got caught up on, you know, the wrong path and I kind of turned my life around basically. And, uh, It's just been one thing after another. And for the first time in my life, I am extremely happy with what I'm doing, who I am and what I've become and like the legacy that I'm basically building, which I didn't realize I was even building it until someone literally told me like, you do know that like if there was like a hall of fame for people in the fingerboarding industry, like you would probably be in there. And I'm like, first kind of hit me. I was like, oh, snaps. Like I actually kind of did leave a legacy. Like I could stop today. And people will forever know me in the industry. Like, it's one of those, like, I just kind of made my stamp in here without even realizing it. And so. That's a lot. So I'm sitting up here, right? I'm, I'm doing the host position today. And I'm just so enthralled in this whole story that I sh- should probably be, like, asking more questions along the way. But I'm just, like, just, it's so, your story is so good. That's all I'm going to say. Well, I appreciate it. I'm uh, kind of glad that I'm able to have a platform that I've built for other people and be able to use the platform and stuff as well Mm -hmm. to let people know like you know who I am my story and what I'm about and what I'm trying to do and all that good stuff and so I think that you know the things that I've been doing regardless if you like them or not I definitely feel like it's been doing way more good than it's been doing harm uh so I know you did a couple other episodes on like other people's podcasts and I don't think that you ever went into this much detail about your past before now, correct? Correct. So I was actually, I was on the fingerboard space, spacecraft. What's the finger space? Finger space. Yeah. I was on the finger space. Um, I was on the finger space podcast and I did one there. This was really just kind of telling a brief history of my fingerboarding history, but not really like who I am as a person. And then basically what I'm basically been doing and then trying to do. And then I kind of did another one as well with uh, Yana with the Switchcraft. I've got an episode with her as well. This was me mm-hmm. right before the start of season one. So Yana's, I think, came first. Well, She's the start of season it. one. And then Fingerspace, I want to say, is after I've already kind of done season one. So if you're all interested in a little bit more of Levine's story, go back and check out those episodes. I'm sure you can find them on Spotify. Well, the cool thing is, is I listened to um, the Fingerspace one and it showcased a lot of my dreams back then. So like, if you guys are like, oh, Levine's full of shit, like, you know, like he's just, uh, he's, you, you can literally go back on that episode and be like, holy cow, he was saying this four years ago. And I was like, yeah, so like, my visions, my dreams, all that stuff, like I've been running it and I already knew what I was wanting to do. I just had to go out and go do it. And so it's definitely been a journey for sure. All right, Levine. I know I mentioned it earlier and I think everybody's probably getting a little bit anticipation of this moment, but 
what's up? We got to listen to win or what? what's going on here? Let's talk about it. We do got to listen to win. So we have a listen to win. So for those that don't know, Curved Fingerboards is my personal brand. So everything that I make, everything that I do that's like completely separate from USFBL, I put it in a curve. Curved is where my passion, my projects and stuff like that are going to be basically released under. And mm -hmm. so for this listen to win, I basically been making a lot of concrete obstacles over the last two or three years. And I am proud to release this pocket loaf. So we just launched this on the website about two weeks ago. It goes for, I think it's like what, $14.99? Super smooth, super slick. Anybody that's seen any of my concretes, they already know. Thing is beautiful. Oh, yours is like baby Butter. bottom smooth. I have a couple of your, yeah, I have a couple of your obstacles and they're they're beautiful. They're you put a little bit of wax on them, they'll slide for days. Yeah, they're 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 butter. I mean, they even they shine in the light like it's literally <laughs> glass. So, all right, let's get to it. So, the listen to win challenge. This is going to be for all of my OG listeners. I have a favorite flip trick, and I have mentioned it on one of the like fifty episodes that we have released. Oh snap! I know I, I know what you're talking about. So if you know what flip trick that is. I am looking for that flip trick into a grind or a slide. So that flip trick, you can do it into like a board slide, blunt slide, no slide, tail slide, but it needs to be on a rail or and a grind. It has to be into it, not out of it, correct? Has to be into it. So do the yeah, flip like trick that. into a grind or a slide. And for those of you that are new, I'm going to give you a hint on Gary Graves' episode. Oh, snap. I know. Gary Graves' episode. You're going to have to go find that episode. My editor dig might be nice. He might put that up here right above my face. But Dig deep, guys. It's a good listen, too. Yep. Somewhere in his episode, I mention my favorite flip trick. So first one to tag... Every single company that I have, we're talking curbs.fb, USAFBL, USAFBL underscore FBP, USAFBL underscore COTY, USAFBL KOTP. Hold on, take a breath. I know you're I know you're running out of steam. That's a lot to talk about. <laughs> I know, I know, I know gets this loaf so the first one to literally tag all of those companies does the combination trick gets the loaf and so what and do they have to post it on a reel or a post or yeah they story, need to make a post it? yeah they need to make a post and uh basically would be a reel and then they need to tag it on instagram so i'll actually do you guys one better this one was actually the first loaf that I actually made that I absolutely love. I'm going to sign the bottom. I'm going to hand sign the bottom for you guys. So we're talking a autographed pocket loaf. First person to flip trick into a grind or a slide. There you guys have it. Man, I wish uh, 
I wish I didn't know what it was so I could try it myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'm excited. I'm excited to see what uh people are gonna gonna post. It's not an easy flip trick either, so definitely uh you better pre give too much away here. All right, fair enough, fair enough. You're right, you're <laughs> right, you're right. So if you guys have made it to this point, finger the like button. Definitely like, subscribe, share, get this out to people. Like, let people know, like, you know, I listened to the real Levine. Like, I heard Levine's story. This is, like, yeah. I have friends that don't even know half of this stuff. So, this like, is as real as it gets. This story, I, this is going to be a great episode for anybody that listens to it. I just know people are going to love this. Definitely. I don't even think my wife knows half of this stuff. So, like, you guys are getting, like, <laughs> a serious insight into... Listen. I hope she can't hear through the wall. She's probably up there mad right now. She's like, Levine <laughs> never even told me that before. <laughs> I know, right? I know. So most definitely. So this is part one. So stay tuned next week for part two. Part two is going to be how I started USAFBL, where all the money came from, how I got basically lucky and transformed, transitioned, I guess you say, from the loop and the comic-con into usafbl and basically tell you the journey from start to all the way to where i am and then i'm going to give you guys some golden nuggets on what's going on with the tour this summer maybe throw out a couple dates who knows and then definitely giving out some nuggets for 2025 so definitely stay tuned definitely hit the notification button until next time. Till next time, guys. Catch y'all next week.